You got a great podcast voice, though. Oh, thanks. Like, I, I hear my voice, and I'm always like, who's that weird kid? Because I don't sound like, I don't got no, I, Marlon Martin. I was like, I was about to be like, Rodney Woods. Rodney. Rodney. <laughs> Are you ready? You're with Jamarley Martin on Go. Uh, we're talking with uh, Rodney Williams, the founder and CEO of Listener. Let's go. Rodney, uh, tell me a little bit about your story, more so on the personal side before we get into uh, the business stuff. Personal side. Um, well, I'm originally from uh, Baltimore. How personal? How far back, right? Uh, how far back do you want to go? When you trace uh, the DNA of where you are today, uh, how would you trace it back? Yeah, you know, I, I was from Baltimore. was born partially deaf. Uh, couldn't speak, uh, you know, came from a, a family where we had limited means, so insurance wasn't necessarily an option. I found out at four years old that I, I couldn't uh, hear well. Went to school in Baltimore, fun times, as you can imagine, but I, I actually went to undergrad at West Virginia University. I did two degrees there, and then I went to grad school at Howard University. I did a, a one grad degree at West Virginia and another grad degree at, at Howard. I did an MBA and kind of brought myself to, to listener, to, to that story. But I mean, my, my family's also originally from Jamaica. That's an important point. Yeah, man. Uh, a lot of you brothers from Jamaica and Africa just killing us over here. What is that about? Uh, meaning that uh, I'm not surprised that uh, you're Jamaican. You know, I think, I think it's really important. I think when, you know, as family and bringing up kids, I don't think I don't, I, don't know the, I don't know the Jamaican or the African answer to that question. I just know in my family, we just didn't necessarily have limitations of, of, of what you could be or potentially be, mainly because there was not much that we were, right? Yeah. Uh, my mom was a hairdresser and a nurse. And, of course, standard Jamaicans, my dad was a carpenter and a plumber and, you know, and did a lot of different things around the house. So um, I just think that as, as I grew up, I didn't have necessary limitations in, in what I could possibly be. And I, I really didn't have someone telling me, no, you couldn't be it. It was more so about, well, you know, honey, I don't, you know, son, I don't really know anything about that. But if you wanted to do that, go ahead. Um, when you say family, did you grow up in a two-parent home? I did. I did. I, I grew up in a two-parent home until I was, uh, yeah, I grew up until I was 18. Okay, got it. I think I felt like they held it all together yeah. until I went to scholarship. Uh, with African-Americans here... Uh, do you believe uh, it's a big handicap in terms of so many of us come from single-parent homes? Yeah, I mean, I, I gotta, I'm always posting that I, like I'm a product of my environment, and I think we're all a product of our environments, and I think that our environments influence who we actually become, I think, significantly. I think it's bigger than a, a, a parent, your parent or your household, mother or father, has a lot to do with everything, right? How you were raised, where you were raised, the components of that, your family structure. I just think all of that is actually probably the most defining uh, characteristics of who you're actually going to become. So I don't necessarily think it's, I think it's a crutch because we, we called it out to be a crutch. But um, I know some awesome, you know, family structures that's a single parent, right? Because the parents actually care. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I think we I think it's not about just a single parent structure. I think most of the time it's usually because they, they grew up in an environment that wasn't necessarily nurturing for them. So you would agree with the sister uh, I knew at Spelman when I was at uh, Morehouse. You know, we're talking about this issue and she goes, yeah, there's nothing wrong with single parent homes. You know, they just push that to make black people feel bad. Uh, we should embrace single parent homes. Yeah. Do you agree with that statement? I, I agree. I agree. I was talking to a bunch of friends of mine, and you know when Hillary goes, uh, you know she was she 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 caught back in the day when she get, like she called black folks, black dudes uh, vultures or something. 
Uh, I think it's predators. Like some predators, yeah. Predator. Yeah. Here comes um, super predators. predators. Yeah, super, super predators. Predator. There you go. Yeah, yeah. and um, I just think we, we have a tendency to, like, the moment we get a name or something negative, like, we take it and we're like, oh, we're a super predator. I, first of all, I thought that was a compliment. I was the yeah. only person that was like, I love being a super predator. If it was just jungle and it was a super predator, I was the person that was going to eat your face. Yeah. Like, I just think that... Um, there we go back to the eating the face part. Yeah. Uh, I just go back to... I just think we tend to take these negative things that are just small examples of a subset of who we are as people, as defining characteristics of why something is it. And I just think if we're the most advanced supercomputers on Earth, human beings, we're way more dynamic than that. Yeah, uh, so what if somebody said, look, the more you deviate from your original African culture, your original Jamaican uh, culture, uh, shout out to my Jamaican folks uh, out there, the more you deviate from that core in terms of your heritage, most likely there's going to be more failure within your uh, community. The, the more and more you get away from those, uh, those original values. I don't, I don't necessarily, necessarily agree. And, or, you know, I, and like I said, I just think that there's good values and there's not good values. I, I, and I, I think it's as basic as black or white. Or, you know, and I think... I just think there's certain family nurtures and values that should be shared. Now, I think what you're getting to is that I think, you know, ethnic or African or Jamaican tend to have more of a, a commonality of these common attractive values that they tend to um, push out into their family. And, and I think that is, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think there's a, as a I just think that's, that's part of that heritage. And I think as, as African-Americans, I think we lose it. We lose a bit of the family structure when you start to have generations of um, single parents or generations of disconnect, right? And and I think that's sometimes that's that's where you're seeing you're seeing generations of disconnect. But you know, obviously, uh, at least in, in maybe not uh, in my view, black people we are in a big mess here in the United States still in, in 2018. When you look at the the data of inequality, is racism a bigger issue? Are, do we have a culture problem where, you know, in terms of progressing from here, where we are in 2018, should the community be more focused on internal culture optimization or racism in terms of trying to change America? What would you give more energy to? I would always give uh, energy into our own culture, into our own establishments. I'm a firm believer of, I'm never going to it's rare that I'm going to teach another man a value. I'm going to teach my son, my kids. I don't have any, but my family. I'm going to do things like that. But it's very rare that I'm going to teach another man a value. I can show him. Uh, I can let him watch it. And I just think our culture should spend way more time investing in each other um, versus worrying about, uh, you know, fixing the, the, the oppression or fixing the, the other person. A scholar uh, out of UPenn, Amy Wax, her thesis is that, look, with black people in America, obviously America has oppressed you guys, enslaved you guys, discriminated against you people. From her perspective, uh, you know, she acknowledges that. But she used the analogy of a victim in a car accident where uh, a person gets hits, hits by a car, uh, they're paralyzed. Right. And essentially, the person who hit them can't really do anything to help them to walk again. Uh, essentially, the person is going to have to pull their their internal resources 
and go through therapy and really stay committed if they have a chance of walking again. And, and she used that analogy with respect to us here in America, where all that racism stuff, the slavery, oppression, discrimination, that stuff is real. We acknowledge that. But in terms of actually changing your circumstance, it's not going to be government. It's not going to be all this other stuff. You're, you're paralyzed, and you got to go and go through that therapy every day. But you have to do it. So she puts the weight on us from here in terms of actually making substantial gains in economics uh, here in the United States. Do you agree with that? I, I agree. You I agree. With that? Yeah, I mean, I just, it's, it's, it's on each other. I just, I think, I know in my personal story, if, if I had let the environment define me, if I had let the challenges define me, if I had let the opposition define me, I went to West Virginia. I went to one of the most racist schools, yep. racist environments um, that you could go to. And, and, and I saw tons of my classmates drop out uh, because of issues outside of the fact of, is it a good school and are you passing? Like, you should go and you should just finish. Um, I just think that we, we got to stop doing that. We got to be more uh, introspective in how we build each other and the communities around us. Yeah, so in, in talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, you have a, a great reputation with a lot of people. And I noticed that, you know, you attend uh, Afrotech, you're at Black Tech Week. Do you believe you being at uh, events uh, such as uh, South by here in Austin with Rodney Sampson, HBCU, uh, South by Southwest, do you believe you would have been so active in the Black Tech community beyond growing your startup? Do you believe there's any correlation between that in terms of, uh, you know, Kind of being I, in the tech community, black yeah, tech community. I mean, I'm active because I, I, I'm not doing this for money. Like, I, I, I tell people all the time, like, don't ask me my valuation or, like, am I planning on selling? That's not what this is about. I'm doing this because I, I feel purposely inspired to do it. And I think it's important that my story is told, and it's important that what I'm doing, I'm, doing, and I'm showing people that I'm doing it my way. You know, the way you see me today is how I'm in a board meeting. It's how I sell my product. I think I've been able to break through borders or barriers by being myself. And I, and I want to encourage people to do that and hold on to that creativity and then um, bring those ideas to market. So that's why I'm in the community. I just really want my story to be told. But if you went to Harvard, you feel like you would still be in these black tech streets. Yeah, right. I, I would still be in the, the streets. Okay, got it. Uh, so, so, so tell us about uh, Listener, uh, how the idea came about. Did you start with co-founders? Uh, you know, talk about how you, you got there and started the company. Yeah, so uh, I was at, while I was at Procter & Gamble, I, I was in marketing. Um, I was the first marketer to co-write digital patents there. Um, had, had the idea of, of, of using sound to, to connect to devices. It really just started out as, like, if I could create a click that you couldn't hear, I was going to put that into commercials, and then that click would essentially tell a device that you're in front of that content, right? I would be able to correlate devices near content. Now, clicks turn to ones and zeros, ones and zeros turn to listener. More importantly, had the idea, didn't know how to build it, uh, went on a startup competition called Startup Bus on the way to South by Southwest, and the, and the rest is history. Um, we, we, you know, we, three months later, we raised a round. I had to, at the beginning, we had a total of five co-founders. I have a total of two now, so it's three of us. And, and we've been doing this for the past six years. Um, it's, it's as, you know, this is the longest job I've ever had. But... Specifically, what we are today, um, we've created a way, um, software that transmits data wirelessly from point to point using near uh, ultrasonic frequency. 
So it's inaudible to the human ear, but re- receivable in being able to broadcast by standard speakers and microphones. Explain that uh, to my grandma in Watts right now. My mama calls it Bluetooth. It's smart. It's a smart dog whistle. Yeah. <laughs> it's a smart dog whistle, but it's, it's, it's like Bluetooth, right? Um, we're being used to displace NFC. So if anyone uses Apple Pay um, and you tap and go, that's, that's a, not simple enough. Come on. Uh, how can you uh, there is no simple way there's no there's there's no no simple way you can't explain like I I joke sometimes I used to have like simple fun way fun facts like sometimes I say you know we are a digital key or we're a digital wallet but that's not what we do like we're a wireless transmission company we transmit dollar wirelessly like we just we just happen to do it using sound yeah that's what we basically do Um, oh and then we do this across many devices cars televisions speakers doors locks point of sale terminals and how big is the opportunity uh, for listener uh, here in the United States you know it's a it's a a huge opportunity we actually actually just hired a a fancy consultant to do another market opportunity and uh, it's 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 over 800 billion dollars and if you if you take into account the number of connected devices and really we only take into account maybe four or five verticals um, IOT um, payments um, entertainment uh, and kind of consumer electronics and the number of devices in those markets and then our pricing model across those devices, it's, it could be a trillion dollar opportunity. You got a big check from Intel. Yeah. Uh, describe that process uh, for our audience. Yeah. You know, what I, year was that in? That was in 2015. So in uh, 2015, we raised uh, $10 million led by Intel Capital. Um, I mean, it's a process. If, if you ever raised a uh, round, you know, you got to go through diligence. And, and diligence is an uh, uh, example of, like, someone walking in your room and, like, digging through your closet, right? <laughs> did, did they do a thorough uh, background investigation on you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think every round, not just Intel, right? I think every, every investor that's pretty much given me a dollar has done a thorough background. You know, they're looking at all your financials. They're looking at all your, you know, they're trying but, to. But personally, they're, they're really digging into Rodney in terms of, uh, you know, your credit and stuff like that. You went through a thorough background investigation. Yes. Yeah, so some of the folks out there, uh, when you're going through Deep DD, I know a lot of us have paranoia, like, hey, man, am am I getting uh, a black tax? Uh, (laughs) Would you, uh, do you believe a black tax is there in terms of a VC, our investment due diligence, where, hey, I'm going to check these black folks out just a little bit more, maybe a lot more. You know, I I don't see these motherfuckers a lot. I hope so. You know, I don't think there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I'm an investor now, and uh, I tend to, when I meet a founder, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mitigating my risk. So the, the only reason why I tend to invest in things that are familiar with me is because I know it, right? So yeah. when, I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when a white investor uh, meets uh, a black founder that he may like, this is very new for him. He doesn't necessarily know much about him, his environment, who he's from. So I think it's only right that 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 person does a thorough check. And now I think as the founder on the other end, it's it's only right that I get myself together if this is what I'm trying to do. do. So it would be justified for a a VC or angel investor to apply heavier due diligence, more thorough due diligence on a black founder because I don't see you guys enough to feel comfortable. Yeah, on any founder he doesn't feel comfortable with. So if the data said, hey, the firm goes deeper on uh, black founders in terms of uh, background checks, yep. is that a problem for you? No. Okay. If I, if I met a founder from um, Russia, guess who's going to go super deep? Because I feel like Russia be doing a lot of things wrong. 
And that's just, you, that's my stereotype. But, but that's are you co- saying black founders are doing a lot of things wrong? I'm saying, I, mean, I literally, and I, I literally, we, we had a customer from Russia, a well-known, respectable company, and we did diligence before we made them customers. Okay. Because it's, it's a high risk. All Russian companies are high risk. But you're comparing I'm saying, your people here in the United States, at least, to Russians. Uh, a lot of corruption, a lot of fraud. You know, why would you compare us to Russians? I'm not comparing us to Russians. I'm saying that, I think that the, the, the clear statement is that I'm saying is that if I'm uncomfortable with something, I'm going to do a lot of diligence. But the, the premise is I'm he, more uncomfortable with black folks because... I don't know black folks. You don't know black folks. Okay, so would you be okay if... Black people need a higher FICO score uh, with with the, with the lender. Uh, so the, black I, folks need a seven hundred. White folks need six fifty. Would that be okay? No, that wouldn't be okay. Laura Ingram from Fox News made a comment about uh, LeBron James, pretty much saying, uh, "Hey, we don't want to hear your politics. We don't want you speaking out for the people against Donald Trump. Just shut up and dribble. You know, you get in big checks. Just shut up and dribble." Your experience with black executives in the tech space and founders. Uh, have you seen a material amount of shutting up and dribbling, or do you feel like there's a very healthy amount of activism where people are speaking out uh, while kind of navigating the ecosystem? Well, I mean, I think you got to speak out with, with the pain points of things that you feel passionate about. I think the higher, the more you have a stage to do so, the more you probably will. I, I kind of know my position and I know my fight, and not and my position was taken, right? I took it. So um, my position is very, very differently and how I want to address the issues that I find in society. Um, and that's a completely different question and answer. But um, I just think, I think you got, I think you got to pick how you want to, how, either you want to be a part of it or you don't, right? You want to, you want to be a voice. You, you want to, you want to, you want to make a comment or you don't. I'm not mad at both parties, to be honest. I'm the glad. The people shutting up and dribbling are the people being very vocal. You're not mad at either side. I'm not mad at either side. You know, what I, you know, I tell people all the time, the best part about this moment is people are talking about it. And people aren't letting anything go. And I, and I appreciate the conversation because six years ago, it, it wasn't a conversation. I, I think something, something is brewing where we're being comfortable. The moment we see racism or something we don't like, we're saying something about it. It's like a natural tension that's starting to rise, and the tension is just bringing more and more awareness to it. And I love it. I think it's good. I, 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 it, was good it was good that she made LeBron feel like that because he should be reminded Every day that he's just like us, you know. I, I just, I just think this. I just think it was something. I just think it was something. It was something good there. How many employees do you have? Uh, I got forty listening? employees. Forty employees. Yes. And uh, you know, what are you comfortable sharing in terms of your biggest challenge, kind of growing your business to forty employees? Probably my biggest challenge now. I mean, my challenge is always. Uh, I think the moment you, you start to hire uh, more and more individuals, the bowl it changes, you know, and the culture changes. Um, and, and you have to learn how to incorporate all these different personalities and all these different passion points, and especially for, for our company where you know, we don't see a filter. Um, we are an extremely diverse organization because um, I, the way I just look at things, I don't have filters. It's not like I don't have a diversity agenda at Listener, but it's very diverse. Not that I go out and look for diverse people. It's just that my lens is completely clear. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm, give, I'm looking at everyone equally. Diversity is for them, not yes. me. That's exactly. what you're saying, yeah. Exactly. Um, but the, the, the toughest challenge at this moment is, is, is making sure that, you know, from a culture standpoint, we're all on the same page. 
and going after the same dream and, and keeping everything uh, and keeping folks, you know, high spirits. I mean, we're, we're trying to, we're David and Goliath at this moment. What has been your biggest mistake? Biggest mistake? Don't believe in mistakes. Um, I think there's things, biggest things that I've learned from. You know, I think, uh, you know, I think that uh, the biggest thing that I've learned mostly was think of it as, as becoming, being too emotional. Business is not an emotional game. Uh, and I think the moment you remove your, move emotion from a lot of your decisions, especially with business, you actually can make a better decision. And I had to learn the hard way about being too emotional, being too passionate. And, and, and then, but, you know, as I learned, I learned to kind of take a step back and just um, take the emotion out of the way and I can make better decisions. Are you at the point of maturity and discipline now where you're that Michael Corleone and you're sitting that employee or executive down who you love and you've become friends, but they're not the right person at this particular time or they're not performing and you are giving them their walking papers. You feel very comfortable with that right now. Yeah. I don't even have to do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right. We have employees. I think even, I think, I think, I think in the beginning I was, but more- I mean, even if, you know, you pass the, the ball and have somebody else do, uh, do it. With someone, I'm, I'm assuming that you're close with, you really like. Uh, they, they may have been loyal. They may have been in your business uh, early on, uh, ride or die, but it's time to go. Uh, so whether you do it or not, it's still an emotional. But I used yeah. to be a lot more sensitive. I have been desensitized over time. I, in the beginning, you know, when someone, when you have a, a dream and you have these employees that believe in it and they start to work for you, you start to feel, and then y'all grow, y'all got in the trenches, and that's great, but at the same time, I need this to be successful. And if you are at um, limiting the ability for the tribe to be successful, you have to go. And um, it's not personal. Got it. And how's your relationship with the people you really uh, loved and respected uh, within your business that you have let go. How's your relationship with them now? Good. It's good. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's just how, it's just how it was. You know what I mean? And I, I like to think I like I got I think it's a uh, we it's all we got a bunch of war scenarios at, at the office and 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 one of my favorites is tours of duties. Right? Um, you're, we're still on the same team. Your tour of duty is just a bit over at this moment. But that maybe it, that's that's that could be temporary. Um, we couldn't need you again. I, I was just thinking about someone that I really liked when we let go probably about a year ago, and I was just having conversations about, I think it's time for her to come back. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what would you say that uh, culturally, black people in the United States are more of an uh, emotional people in terms of personal connections? Uh, and we're the opposite of this uh, uh, would be a very transactional culture uh, where, you know, hey, it's easy for you to kind of make that cold decision in, in terms of letting people go offing folks. Do you believe culturally, with respect to the discipline that you uh, acquired, do you believe black people culturally are at a disadvantage at making those type of uh, decisions? Yeah. Those, those cold decisions in terms of, look, look, Uncle Tyrone, or your loyal uh, partner, or, or whatever that is, uh, uh, you know, it, it's time to go. We're just too nice. The world isn't that nice. I don't know why, That's we, true. why we think we need to be that nice. 
But what you what do you think it's a fair statement? I think it's, uh, I think it's a fair we're statement. At a, in terms of decision-making within businesses, we are uh, uh, an emotional people. And we, so. we're, we're, le- we're allowing emotions to get in the way of the, the enterprise often. Uh, 99% of the time. Yeah. I, when, I, when I hear about everything I hear when I meet uh, a black owner, founder, about why they don't take funding or why this or, you know, what's going on with this founder, they're bickering about this, it's... Mostly emotional issues. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That brings up a point where uh, you know Bob Johnson sold uh, BET to Viacom for approximately uh, two billion. A lot of people in the black community believe that when you start a business in the United States, you can't sell to another corporation. You just hold it forever. Other cultures, you know, they they're not selling their business. Uh, you know, uh, the, the black business is selling to a major corporation somebody's willing to pay a big check, you're selling out. How do you feel about uh, that mentality? It's just, it's just a bunch of chit-chat from someone who's never had the opportunity to sell a business. <laughs> a bunch yeah. of people, right? I mean, we only know what we know because we've seen it before. And we just haven't seen it enough to understand if it's positive or negative. So I think what you're seeing is a lot of honesty. They, they, they're so ha- we get, you know, we're so happy when something is ours because we don't have a lot of things. That are ours. Yeah. So it's, it's a, that's just a personal thing. So, so when we see it getting sold, we think it, it loses a little bit of that. And we're like, oh, man, we lost another one. Um, but, I mean, we should celebrate those things. Um, and we should encourage it to happen more or uh, in bigger ways. I, I, think, I just think it, it's such an opportunity for it. I mean, you know, we, we saw it with uh, um, Rich Dennis selling um, Sundial brands, right? Everyone's like, oh, my God, now, now we don't have a beauty brand, right? And I'm like, wait a minute. Um, this, is, this is a good thing. If we think about wealth disper- you know, yeah, disbursement. Why, why would uh, the community tax him with the burden uh, where, hey, the industry is changing, technology is changing. Most people in capitalism, when you have so much disruption and may possibly you need more scale, you need more distribution, another entrepreneur is going to do a rational thing in terms of I'm going to sell my company with a bigger company. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like some of these people are saying, no, don't, no, that option the black founder cannot do that or should not do that because he got to keep it in the community. Yeah, just right. Like, honestly, don't care much. But, uh, but no, I mean, I think it's wrong. I mean, I think, I think, we, I think we should be encouraging our, our companies to be bigger and better in any capacity possible. And that's also how we get a seat at those tables. Yeah, and when that brother uh, sells, uh, I guess he sold a big chunk to uh, Bain Capital and then he sold... Uh, uh, finally to Unilever, when he cashes out, most likely he can do more good than just running the business forever. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think that's fair? I think it's fair. I mean, I think, I think he's already done good, right? He, he sold that, and then he went and, sold, he went and bought Essence, right? And, and then, you know, made it back, back. Now it's back to me and Black-owned, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't think... He should have the burden to feel like he needs to do that, though. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's probably the part that I'm probably disconnected from. Like, we should just celebrate the fact that, like, he had the opportunity to go out and do that. And, and, and then now he should have the opportunity to invest back in our community or invest in the things he loves or invest in the things he cares about. Um, yeah. Why can't he sell like everybody else? Because he's black. So yeah. now, fucking, I'm catching y'all motherfuckers on both sides. So. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I ain't hearing it when I sell. So I don't, yeah. I don't, <laughs> you're not. You're not hearing any of that. I'm not uh, hearing it at all. Hearing that noise. 
it's the best thing about tech and uh, us selling data over audio because most people don't understand it. So yeah. most people don't pay any attention. Uh, and I, I just think it's funny. Uh, I, that's my other problem, right? Just because we don't understand something, like we tend to shy away from it. Yeah. Those are the things we should dive into is the things that make us most uncomfortable, the things that we don't know. Um, it's just how we're going to learn. That's just how we're going to learn better, I think. I had a, uh, a session on Twitter uh, last night uh, talking about the endowments of uh, Howard Spellman and Morehouse uh, is approximately uh, $800 million uh, in, 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 in aggregate, all three of them. Do you see a role for HBCUs to play uh, in terms of uh, backing uh, uh, black uh, tech founders and investing in the equity of black businesses? Do you believe that there's, there should be a connection between those endowments and uh, venture capital going to black founders? I, mean, I, th- I think so. I mean, definitely, right? Um, shout out to Howard. I went to Howard. Uh, by the way, How- Howard has the largest endowment uh, at over a, a half a billion dollars uh, uh, out of all HBCUs uh, for the audience. It's a pretty good endowment, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think, I mean, <laughs> the education system is, uh, is, a, is a troubling system. But with that said, yes, I do think, um, I think, I think HBCUs have to find their new role in this new world, right? You know, in the previous world, it was, uh, you know, historically black colleges was because, uh, you know, black folks couldn't get into schools that were majority. And, you know, they wanted to encourage more blacks in college. I think, what, what is the role it plays now? Is, is, it, is it the creme de la creme of the black folks? I'm not saying I'm answering that question now, but I do think Part of that should be about continuing to build black communities using um, black education, educational institutions. Yeah, and the goal of endowment, of course, is you want to generate an attractive risk-adjusted return. Uh, Yale, uh, you know, the historical returns uh, are, are, are north of uh, 15%. Uh, in the Yale model, they have a very healthy allocation to private equity and venture capital. David Swenson... Uh, the fund manager uh, kind of pioneered a strategy where I don't want a lot of the stocks and bond stuff. I want to go with uh, hedge funds who can generate alpha over the market over the long term. But I want access to illiquid assets because those are going to outperform. So, you know, in my mind, HBCUs should be at the, the, the front end in terms of investing at least a small amount of capital. They should be here. Uh, if they want to get out the mess, they should be investing in the best black talent, include, not just tech, uh, but Hollywood, possibly, you know, backing directors such as Ryan Coogler, so they can generate uh, outperformance on their investment returns. But I do not see any evidence of them doing any of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's, it's not any evidence. They should. Right. I mean, they should. They should. I mean, it's, 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 this is the moment that they should um, um, be doing that. The mess that they're in. Is it their fault? Particularly the, the top uh, HBCUs. So it's not their fault? Is it their fault? Like, hey, you know, you guys got yourself in this mess. Poor management. Uh, you don't want to take any risk, even when times were good. You weren't investing uh, in terms of your, your, as, your asset allocation, uh, uh, you know, was most likely highly defective, uh, where you're just doing conservative stuff for the last 30 years. Too conservative stuff. I, I, th- I think so, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, what you're what you're what you're experiencing is, you know, institutions that are ran by educational leaders versus institutions that are ran by business leaders. 
I think if there, I think if it had a, a I think if they had a, a business person looking at that, why aren't they talking to you? <laughs> Man, they they need to. I you know yeah. I I joked about it that you know I, I you know I went back to the school and I was like, how did I end up at the University of Cincinnati's board of trustees versus Howard University's board of trustees? Yeah, um. <laughs> uh, I mean, a phone call to you, it sounds like uh, they can at least uh, get in the door for some very interesting, uh, you know, uh, equity uh, opportunities. Even if it's just a little bit, you guys you need to be playing in this space because, you know, the university system is a, a game of competition and it's mainly driven by uh, endowments, uh, investment returns, uh, and essentially... You need a, a war chest, and you're not going to do that with, uh, uh, you know, a simple stock and bonds uh, portfolio. So relative to other university endowments, uh, Howard, Morehouse, Spellman, they're subscale, right? So when you're subscale, uh, you know, you're not going to get attractive commissions with your, with your brokers. Uh, your due diligence is not going to be the best. Your opportunities are not going to be the best. You're subscale. You don't have a lot of resources. Do you think the HBCU uh, endowments should be working together on investment returns with uh, uh, working together collectively on generating, uh, you know, outperformance in terms of their investment returns? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think, like I said, I just think it, it, for that to actually happen, right, you just need kind of business leaders to be thinking about it from a business standpoint versus educational leaders thinking about it from a, from, a, from an education. Um, and I think you got to take risks. But, uh, you know, I think, again, back to, like, we don't take risks as a people. <laughs> I just don't think we've, I don't think we've been, I don't think we're comfortable with risk. I don't think we're comfortable with failure. I don't think we're comfortable with being uncomfortable. And we tend to do what has always been done, which tends to, create average returns, right? Average growth. And what would you say to the point of view that, hey, stop looking, stop being so judgmental uh, on HBCUs uh, because they don't have a lot of resources, uh, they shouldn't be in that as asset uh, class, uh, such as private equity, which are illiquid. Uh, you know, you may not have access to the funds for five to 10 years. This is just a function of uh, not having a lot of money. Uh, you know, would you, would you defend the HBCUs on that point. I, I would, I would. I mean, they they, they should definitely be um, looked at differently than how they are looked at today. Big shout out to Rodney Williams, the founder and CEO of Listener. Uh, we really thank him for coming on the program today. Thank you. Thank you for having me.